to Mark's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are on week number two of a year-long study in Mark. And as we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer and ask His blessing upon our time in His Word. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before You now as a people in great and desperate need. We are in need of revelation from the outside and of transformation on the inside. So, Father, would your word and spirit have their way with us, not just for the next half an hour, but all of our lives. Father, may your word before us be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our supreme teacher, and your greater glory our ultimate good, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't remember where I was or how old I was when I heard first these words, catechism and catechizing, but I'm pretty sure that whenever I heard them or wherever I was, I thought they sounded somewhat painful. Now, these once familiar Terms and practices in the church have fallen somewhat out of favor over the recent years. And yet, as we've been doing now for the last four weeks, we as a church are going back, as it were, to the catechism. It's uh, Hopefully, it will have new life in us as individuals, as families, and as a church. Now, as we've been saying in our classes, what is a catechism? It's an instructional guide. It's a handbook of questions and answers designed to teach the principles of religion. Catechizing is a systematic instruction using simple questions and answers. It's a time-tested tool for spiritual nurture. You've heard of the Heidelberg Catechism, 129 questions divided into 52 sections uh, for each Lord's Day of a year. We've been looking at, in our class, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 107 questions. There's the Westminster Larger Catechism, 196 questions. There's the Catechism for Young Children, 145 questions. And believe it or not, the first catechism, which our youngest are using, has 150 questions. But I'm so thankful, not only for those, but also for the shortest catechism. Any of you all familiar with the shortest catechism? Well, I believe that Mark's gospel can rightly be viewed as a catechism of sorts. For over 16 chapters, three important questions are asked and answered. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? We as a church for the next year are going to be one book, one community, the Bible, the church, the gospel of Mark. Now, where does Mark fit into the Bible? Well, the Bible, as we know, is all about Jesus. He says it himself in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection. He tells the people it's all about me. Indeed, the Old Testament is Jesus predicted, the gospels Jesus revealed, Acts Jesus preached, the letters Jesus explained, and revelation Jesus expected. Well, why study a gospel? Why study one of these books that reveal Jesus? 
Well, we live in a day and age, as we've been saying, of biblical illiteracy and ignorance. And the Gospels teach us who Jesus is and why he came. They are great to be able to know so that we can defend and commend the Christian faith. Well, why study a whole gospel? Why not just study parts here and there? Well, the Bible is not just a textbook. It's not a systematic theology. From from Genesis to Revelation, it is one story told in 66 books, each with a particular purpose and a coherent message addressed to a specific situation. Now think about the last time you received a letter from a friend. Anybody get a handwritten letter this past week? Probably no one. Think about a long email that you received. Did you sit down and read it, all of it, or did you just jump to the parts you wanted to see, right? No, you sat down and read it from cover to cover, from beginning to end. That's what we used to do with handwritten letters. We took the time to write them and we took the time to read them. And God, as it were, has written a handwritten letter, his handwritten letter to his people. So studying a whole book at one time is the best way to study a Bible. Each passage must be understood in its context and the whole of the book which contains it. For a gospel, that means we're not dealing with a collection of unrelated stories, but rather stories which have been selected and arranged for a purpose. Well, why study Mark? Well, if you caught on to the idea of the shortest catechism, Mark is the shortest gospel. And it's believed to be the earliest, the core gospel, with Matthew and Luke using Mark. It's an ideal gospel to study and to master, or rather as our something to think about quote reminds us again this week, it's a book to be mastered by. And again, with only three questions and answers in its catechism, it's a great place to start. Before we get into our text itself, we're just going to need to go back through the background and orientation for a few uh, moments It'll be important in these first few weeks to continue to provide that orientation and overview. John Mark is the author of this gospel, and we believe it to be really uh, the perspective of Peter, Peter's encounters, Peter's life with Jesus that we see recorded by Mark, written in the mid-60s of the first century, and the audience is a Greek-speaking audience to Christians in and around Rome. Well, what is a gospel? As we said last week, it's a brand new type of literature. It's a new genre. It's a whole new literary form that was really created to contain this new, unique message. And we said last week, gospel, the very word gospel, good news of a military victory, of a birth, of the installation of a new ruler. It's news, not advice. A gospel here is not a biography, it's not a complete account of Jesus' public ministry, it's, a, it's focused on really his public ministry for three years and the last week of his life. If it's not a biography, what is it? It's a docudrama, it's like those TV news documentaries with noteworthy clips of events and activities, it's speeches and dialogues and occasional commentary by the narrator. Mark, as we will see, is fast-paced, vivid descriptions 
Um, there are verbs used to portray action. We will see the word immediately used over 40 times. There's an inevitability about what takes place next as Mark races through the life and ministry of Jesus. There's the action-reaction aspect of Mark's gospel, where Mark is like a cameraman who zooms in to something taking place in the life of Jesus as he performs a miracle, as he teaches, but then he zooms out and he pans the audience to get their response and their reaction. That's an orientation. Well, how about an overview? Mark's purpose and aim, once again, is to make three things known. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how someone should respond. This is the big picture of Mark, and if you ever get lost along the way, come back home to hear. Last week in Mark's opening line, we saw that the book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is orderly, deliberate, and purposeful in the organization and structure of his book, as we will see. The first half of the book answers the question, who is Jesus? It focuses on the person of Jesus. It goes from 1-1 to the chapter 8 where we see the climax, the center of the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Peter rightly says, you are the Christ. And indeed, between the first half and the second half is a hinge of that question and answer. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. And from there, the second half unfolds and it answers the question, what did Jesus come to do? Whereas the first half focuses on who Jesus is, the second half focuses on what he came to do, his work. And instead of Jesus being the Christ, the focus is on Jesus as the Son of God. And it's climaxed at the crucifixion when the Roman centurion looks up and confesses at the death of Jesus, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark's gospel, or the gospel according to Mark, the man, it's Peter's interpreter. That's who Mark is. His method is this docudrama, and his message is the gospel. And the gospel is centered upon Jesus. It's all about him, and it's proclaimed by him. And who is Jesus, this man? He's Christ and the Son of God. His mission we will see unfold. His message we will hear. We'll discover that Jesus is, in a word, the King. And as King, He brings the kingdom of God. Well, last week in verse 1, it wasn't so much the title, but rather the theme. Who is Jesus? We will see unfold. Jesus is the King. And today we're going to see that Mark uses three witnesses to announce this advent of Jesus as we sang, born a child and yet a king. These three witnesses are the prophets, John the Baptist, and God the Father himself. In verses 2 and 3, we will see Jesus being proclaimed by the prophets. The king will come. And then we will see in verses 4 through 8, proclaimed by John, the king is coming. And then in verses 9 through 13, Proclaimed by God himself, the king is here. Join with me now as I read verses 2, excuse me, I'll start with 1 through verse 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So let's take a look at Jesus, the one proclaimed by prophets. The king will come. Here, Jesus is coming, is foretold and anticipated by the prophets. This passage actually quotes and combines a passage from Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah 40. It's the coming of a messenger fulfilled in verses 44 through 8, John the Baptist, to announce the coming of a Messiah himself, and we see fulfilled in verses 9 through 11. What's interestingly is the first and the last of the latter prophets of how Jewish folks um, considered parts of the Old Testament. The first and last of the latter prophets were Isaiah and Malachi of the Hebrew Bible. And so it's a quotation being uh, taken from both Malachi and Isaiah. But Isaiah is the more prominent and therefore it's the representative of the whole. He quotes there the opening of the book of comfort, which promises Christ, the king who would come to redeem and to judge. Interestingly, comfort to both rescue and to judge. They announced that the the day of judgment was coming, but before it happened, the suffering servant would bring salvation to both Jew and Gentile. And here, right off the bat, we see the unity of the Bible. Children, the Old Testament promises what? Promises made, and the New Testament promises kept. Indeed, and we see that. If the Old Testament is the gospel's beginning and source, then the gospel revealed through Jesus is the final and inspired interpretation of the Old Testament message. Mark informs his readers here that the Old Testament had predicted the arrival of the Messiah, and it would be preceded by the coming of a forerunner. He identifies the forerunner with John the Baptist. Now remember, this is 400 years of silence, as it were, from God. Decades and centuries of waiting. And for those of you here for the series a couple of years ago, the Songs of the Incarnation, remember from Luke chapter 2, Annan and Simeon, what have they been doing? They've been waiting. They've been 
waiting. How about you guys? 400 years? Years of waiting? They've been waiting. They've been waiting for the promise to be filled. And indeed, we also, as God's people, are waiting for God's promise to be filled, his promise to return. We see it fulfilled and we will see his return fulfilled. So if you're struggling right now with waiting, find comfort in the stories of God's people waiting. I believe the women, as they study Revelation, have encountered the expression patient endurance. Patient endurance. That's the Christian life. Patient endurance. Waiting. Waiting. The prophets proclaim that the king will come and John proclaims that the king is coming. The king is coming. John, the messenger foretold, has arrived. The last of the Old Testament prophets is now on the scene. And verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, makes explicit the fact that the Old Testament prophecies are about to be fulfilled. The messenger who goes ahead of the, God's Messiah is now here preparing for the way of the Lord. Indeed, John is, is an Old Testament prophet in the likes of Elijah in his dress and his wilderness and what he eats. But this messenger has a message. And what is his message? He prepares the way by preaching the coming of the king and our need to turn to him. It's the coming of the king from Isaiah and it's the need to turn and return from Malachi. He's got a two-fold message. He's calling men and women to repentance for the repentance is the way to receive the king. And he announces his successor. John has a ministry of baptism, a common practice at that time in Judaism, but it's unusual, but usually reserved for Gentiles who want to come in to be among God's people, to identify with God's people. So John, in calling everyone to repentance, it's a radical call. In his ministry of preaching and baptism, John is only a forerunner. He brings the symbol of water baptism, but the one who's coming after him will bring the reality of spirit baptism. All the forerunner could do was to point to his successor, for Christ would do in reality what John could only symbolize. Listen to this verse again in verse 7. And John preached saying, After me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I don't know if you caught it when you heard it or when you read it, but John is saying, I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of the sandals of this man coming. Now you say, what's so big about that? Well, it's this. Even a Hebrew slave was not all the time subjected to the absolute menial task of untying the dirty, sweaty, 
sand encrusted, who knows what encrusted. It was too low for even a slave. Brothers and sisters, Jesus who calls John the greatest of those born of women is saying that the one who's coming after me is so much greater, so much more wonderful, so much more worthy of following that I am not even in the position I don't even have the worth to untie his sandals. John, in the language of the day, is trying to communicate the gap between Jesus and sinful man is so great that the only way that there is going to be the gap um, bridged is if Jesus comes and stoops, as it were to his level and below. It's a radical attitude and submission, a radical attitude of recognition of Jesus and submission to Jesus. How about you all? Is that how you would view Jesus? You know, as we talked last week about counterfeit Jesuses, you know, guru Jesus, best friend, forever Jesus, Dr. Phil Jesus, American Jesus. Jesus, the Holy One of God. The coming of the Messiah, the King, is proclaimed by the prophets. It's proclaimed by John the Baptist, the forerunner. And now we will see proclaimed by God himself. God himself will say that the King has arrived and is here. It's here that Mark introduces, beginning in verse 9, his reader to Jesus, both through his baptism and through his temptation. Let's look for a moment at John's, excuse me, Jesus' baptism, beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And here are two aspects of Jesus' baptism. His identification with sinners and his commissioning by God. Let's think about his identification with sinners. Jesus comes from Nazareth. He comes from nowhere in Galilee of dubious reputation. And he lines up with those confessing their sin. Can you picture the scene? John is baptizing in the River Jordan. And Jesus comes and joins in with others who are being baptized. But John has a mission to fulfill, and Jesus has a mission to fulfill, and their missions come together. Because not only is Jesus identifying himself with sinners from the beginning, but he's being commissioned by God for his public ministry. A little bit of background in the Old Testament is helpful here that God's kings were anointed by the prophet and, and received the Holy Spirit at that time. And the prophet anoints the king here in baptism. The king receives the sign of the Holy Spirit and the divine name. You have a visual and a verbal assurance of God's approval. And you hear the voice. Not only is there the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, but a voice coming from heaven. You are my beloved son. And with you I am well pleased. And we will hear that again on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's visual and there's verbal. 
confirmation and assurance of God's approval. What Mark has said about Jesus in his first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is now confirmed by God himself. The baptism of Jesus marked his public inauguration as the Messiah. He came into the world to be the Savior of sinners, and his first public act shows this. Jesus did not come in pomp and circumstances to lord it over men, but rather the king comes in lowliness and humility to save them. Brothers and sisters, as we've said before, coming to faith in Christ is where you declare your spiritual bankruptcy. You have nothing. You, You have no credit. You declare that I am broke and poor and needy, and that is the entrance to the kingdom. Membership into the church, into the body of Christ, is when you declare, I don't have it, what it takes. But every other human organization, yeah, this is what I can bring to you. This is what I can do for you. This is how I'm qualified. This shows the upside down values of the kingdom of God right from the beginning. The way down is the way up. Jesus himself said after instructing his disciples to not be like the Gentiles who lord it over people, he said what? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right from the beginning, we're seeing that the values of the kingdom of God run smack up against the values of our world, of prestige, of power, of influence, of possession. Right from the beginning is Jesus identifying himself with sinners, submitting to the will of his father, submitting to baptism of John. But we go from baptism straightway to his temptation, a sudden shift as God's king, his anointed king, is opposed. You know, there's a lot of interpretations for these verses, but for Mark, it's just a brief account. His intention seems to be no more or no less than to establish that there will be conflict with Satan, and it will be a major part of the ministry of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? We read elsewhere to destroy the works of the devil. Why did he come to free people who were enslaved to the fear of death? And how did he do that? Through his own death. It's enough for Mark here in these two verses to show that Jesus is not defeated. And in these two verses are two contrasts. Jesus is contrasted with Adam, the first man, because Jesus is the last Adam or the second man. And Jesus came to undo what Adam had done through his sin, through the fall into sin. He entered the world not as Adam had entered it, into a perfect world, into a garden, but Jesus enters into a ruined world in the wilderness But he's also contrasted not just with Adam the man, but with Israel, God's son, as it were, being tested in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. 
And how did Israel do in the wilderness? How did they do? They failed time and time again. And yet Jesus, as it were, knew Israel. He is tested and he does not fail. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Notice that our Savior in this time of hunger and thirst and temptation is being ministered to by angels. Jesus, our Savior, is getting help. He's not doing this on his own. His Father is providing for him. Brothers and sisters, if this is how God treats his own son, will he not also provide what we need in our wilderness, in our journey to the promised land? Jesus is not abandoned. He's helped. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That question one. Well, three witnesses proclaim that he is the Messiah. He's the promised king. And our passage portrays Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of God, as the one announced by John the Baptist. And we see that in verses 2 through 8. Anointed by the Spirit in verse 10. Acknowledged by the divine voice from heaven. And then approved by his testing in the wilderness. Jesus is now therefore ready and prepared for his ministry and mission. And so our passage serves as a prologue. It introduces us to Jesus' true significance as the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God as the story about him begins. The stage is now set by Mark for the public ministry of Jesus, a ministry that will lead invariably, unstoppably, to his death. The shortest catechism, it's the big picture of Mark. The three questions and answers. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the anointed king, the suffering servant who stood with sinners in the Jordan River, who went hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, who was tempted by the devil. Who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? He came to die, but on his way to death, what happened? Again, he went hungry. He went thirsty. He withstood temptation. And how should someone respond? Well, as Mark unfolds, we will see that the response to the person and work of Jesus is to receive him in repentance and faith. And yet we will also sadly see the response of rejection. There's two responses. Receive Jesus or reject Jesus. There is no third way. Remember chapter 8? The middle of the book. The move from who do people say that I am to who do you say that I am? Right at the beginning we're not going to be able to get away from Jesus. We can't stand at a distance from him. Jesus, as it were, gets personal and he looks us in the eye. 
Who do you say that I am? As we said last week in Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, we hear these words, to be or not to be, that is the question. And what is that question? Self-focused. It's inward. It's the way of the world. It responds to the fact that our hearts are naturally curved in, it, in ourselves. We love looking in the mirror. And that question is a perfect one for today. Look at advertising. Look at entertainment. To be popular, successful, to, 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 to be this, that, or the other. That's the question. But at the center, at the heart of Mark is the question, who do you say that I am? It's other focused. It's outward. Now that is the question. The most important question that you or I or anyone will ever be asked because it's a question of life or death significance. Brothers and sisters, our answer to that question reveals our present direction and our future eternal destiny. May God be pleased to give us a growing confidence in our answer, an answer that leads to both increasing boldness as well as increasing humility. And may our lives joyfully echo the statement that John the Baptist made about Jesus and himself that we read in John chapter 3, verse 30. John, speaking of Jesus, says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing uh, this account of the beginning of the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that this shows us the connection between Old and New Testament. We thank you that this shows us that your promises, though delayed, are never promises that are not fulfilled. I pray that as your people today, we would cling to your promises and, and grow in our trust that you are a great and a good God who does all things well. Oh, Father, the world around us, the flesh in us, and your and our enemy, um, the prince of this world, Father, throws stuff at us all the time. Would you protect us, Father? He whispers to us that we must increase and that you must decrease. Oh, Father, would you help us to see that that is a lie and to find our joy and security and satisfaction that as Christ increases, we decrease. And as we decrease, we find life as it was meant to be lived. Oh, Father, may Christ receive the glory in our lives individually, as families, and through this church. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.